from Kurtco Media. Welcome to Cars That Matter. Instead of a new episode this week, we're re-releasing our first ever episode. Why, you may ask? Cars That Matter is turning one year old. It's hard to believe that it's been a year, and to celebrate, we're resharing our very first episode. You may notice this episode is considerably shorter in length than the original. The conversation was edited a bit to adapt to its re-release, so I invite you to go back and listen to the original if you'd like to hear the entire conversation. This episode is a fun time capsule, and my, the world has certainly changed since we launched our first show. Just like any car project, we've had surprises, adapted to new challenges, and still managed to have a lot of fun. Over time, we've become more focused. The edits are much tighter, and Bill Curtis was in the passenger seat back then. But the one thing that hasn't changed over the past year is our dedication to speak with the most unique and interesting voices in the world of cars and luxury. Designers, collectors, auctioneers, drivers, historians, really every aspect of the automotive landscape and the collectible car world. This show isn't just shop talk. It's deep conversations with all of the car guys and gals that make our part of the world so very special. So thanks for coming on this drive with us. We're excited to see where the road is heading. And if you haven't already, please follow, subscribe, and share this podcast. Now think back a year and enjoy the conversation with David Gooding of David Gooding and Company, recorded in the fall of 2019. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, my fellow car fans. Welcome to Cars That Matter. Back when we ran Rob Report, we spent our lives searching the world for the very best of the best of everything. And it turns out the finest in style, design, quality always start with special people. Now, one of the most special connoisseurs of automotive art and design was the car guy at Rob Report. Welcome our host for Cars That Matter, Mr. Robert Ross. Welcome, Robert. Well, Bill, thank you for that encomium. Hardly deserving, but hugely appreciated. I really do appreciate that. We had an awful lot of fun with Rob Report, and the most fun about it, I think, was meeting some of the great people over the course of those years. One of them, of course, is my guest today, David Gooding. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Obviously, David needs little introduction among car aficionados around the world, but to make a little more formal introduction, Gooding and Company has built a reputation as the world's leading automotive auction house, making a name for consistently offering, well, what I'd like to say, cars that matter. Founder and President David Gooding started his Santa Monica-based firm in 2003, and since then, he's achieved an impressive roster of top sales, setting a number of model-specific records for prices realized, and making a lot of friends along the way. I had a chance to meet with David and his team at Gooding & Company up in Monterey this August, where uh, they uh, acted as the official auction house once again for, I think, what is really the world's most prestigious car show, the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. August 2019 was another one of those hair-raising Monterey car weeks, wasn't it, David? Yeah. You know, one of the great things about the auction business is even for those of us fully immersed in it for all these years, we never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the excitement of it. It's the market speaking. So when those cars roll up on the ramp and they exceed their estimate or they fall short, it happens there in front of a worldwide audience. It's always fun to see the market speak and to get that feedback 
back in real time. And to see the history being made in real time, too. And it sounds like this year you actually made a little bit of history because you established the weekend's highest sales more than $76 million worth. I could joke and say it's not bad for a weekend's work, but I know there's about a year of planning behind all that, isn't there? (laughs) There is, yeah. We're working constantly on it. We're already working on next year's sales, and (laughs) it's never-ending. What have you uh, done for me lately? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. I mean, it's literally you wake up the next day and have to start all over again, and I'm already planning trips to go look at cars that might be for sale or convince these clients that are thinking of selling a car that we'd love to have. Let's take a breath and enjoy the fruits of this last week's sales. Certainly there were some highlights in Monterey. Yeah. And you set some pretty fine cars up on stage. Yeah. So our, our top selling lot was a 1958 Ferrari California Spider. And we, that was nearly a $10 million car. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a couple California Spiders for sale on the weekend. Ours was the only one that sold. Beautiful car. I mean, just absolutely stunning. It had a first class restoration by Motion Products and Wayne. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It it was Ferrari Classic A certified, finished in a gorgeous period color scheme of gray, which you don't usually see on those cars. And we have a great video on our website of that car. That was a fun day, making the video and driving the car around a lot. Fantastic car. Certainly one of the blue chip icons of yeah. uh, the Ferrari stable. Definitely. I mean, it, it always has been. We've probably sold more, well, we have sold more California Spiders than anyone. They just embody everything great about a 250 Ferrari. They're sensational looking. They sound great. They're fun to drive. Open air motoring V12. So when you looked at that car and you knew you were auctioning that car at yes. this event, mm-hmm. uh, did you have an immediate thought in your mind on what its value should be and who should buy it? <laughs> yes. we all, Well, yeah, I, I always, and, and my team, we always look at the cars and we, we, have, we come up with a, a list of people that we think would be interested in them. And then we also a- absolutely come up with pricing. And our estimate on the car was 11 to 13. It sold for uh, under that price. 9.9? 9.9, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the market speaking. It, yeah. didn't, it didn't speak terribly loudly. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's still a pretty good yeah, price. It was, it's still a lot of money for had our Had that car. car sold previously? Yes, that car had sold previously in the nines not too long ago. Yeah. No, so someone just bought it and turned it right around? Well, they, they bought it, and then they, they put a bunch of money in restoring it. Emotion so. products restoration is not for the faint of heart. No. And that's, uh, no, there were that's receipts inches thick. Like a, that old New York yellow pages. Yep. Yep, exactly. Yeah, but beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, just gorgeous. That's the way you want them. If it's not absolutely original, you want them perfectly restored. That's right. That was a great sale. Yeah. And you had some other Ferraris, too. Obviously, there was a Series 1 cab that did not do too shabbily. I believe that's a record for a Series 1 cabriolet. We sold it for 6.8, and that is a real interesting kind of comparison. That is a good bit less than the, the California, but it's Basically the same car, different coach builder. One is the California Scaglietti. The Series 1 is Pininfarina. There are a lot of people that prefer the Pininfarina-bodied cars. When they were new, they were a lot more expensive. That's they a were pretty cool. Thousands of, you know, I think a, a Series 1 was $12,000. Yeah. $13,000. Okay, there we yeah. go. And then the California was nine or something. So uh, they were a lot more expensive. Higher build quality. Uh, they are stunning. It is interesting how time has made the California the more valuable car. 
It's got a name that is easier to digest and explain for a lot of people. You know, you say California spider. You know, you can say that and they know what if you say series one Pinifrina cabriolet. A lot of people is kind of little more of a, a, little, a little more of a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. But nothing, the, the cars are sensational. Yeah. The PF so, cab. David, can you yeah. tell us a little about your, your process with like mm-hmm. a series one where you're going to photograph it, you're going yep. to possibly develop a video, you obviously look at its heritage and previous sales, and I guess you look into its restoration quite a bit. And you t- tell us a little about your step-by-step process. It's not so easy no. to take a car, put it on a stage, and, and have someone walk away having spent $6 million plus. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's not easy, which is fine. That's okay. Otherwise, uh, everybody would everybody be doing everybody it. would be doing it. Looking at that series one, that's a great example. We've been chasing that car for years. I've known of that car since the '90s when the previous owner had it. The fellow that consigned it to us got it, I think, in about 1997, and I've literally been following that car since then. He did not want to sell. Did not want to sell. Did not want to sell. Finally, he purchased another car from us that he'd been just dying to have. And for various reasons, there was something that had to go in the collection and I kind of... Ran out of parking spots in the the garage. Yeah. We were debating between a few cars and I knew that that Series 1 was really special. There are only a few that have the side vents and the bumperettes, which it's the ultimate derivation of the Series 1 of the 36 or 39 cars that were built, only about four or five have what is considered the prettiest combination of all these features. And this is one of those cars. And so I was really pushing him because I knew that we could really accentuate that and sell that to to some of our clients. And he agreed. And uh, then the photography comes into play. We had the car shipped out here. We photographed it in Malibu. I, I love the photo shoot that we have of that car. Uh, That's a, at the Rock? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hard yeah. to beat. Then we, we go through cataloging it, and uh, there's another thing. As we were researching, we knew a fair amount about the car and its history and its originality. What we didn't know, which was fun and interesting, was the original owner, this Italian prince, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was the inspiration for the movie La Dolce Vita, and he was a quite a character. I mean, this was a guy that led an interesting full life. A lot of Ferrari owners have. Yeah, he was he was at the top of the chain. I mean, lots of, it was La Dolce Vita. I sure, mean, definitely. Sure, you know. wine women and all the good stuff. Wine women and fast cars, and that was his thing. You know, we, we really enjoy the research and delving into the history of these cars, and we're quite proud of the writing that we do, and if you read the catalog description of that car, it's a mini novella. There. That's a lot of work you put into that, which is really what makes the value of a car these days. It's as much about the story as it is about the metal sometimes. Definitely. These are parts of history, parts of human history. And so when you're looking at that car, the car itself is beautiful. But then when you look into it further and realize the people that were involved with it, it just becomes that much more interesting and enjoyable and valuable, perhaps monetarily valuable, of course. But how do you put a price on that? Absolutely. You know? The Mona Lisa is a whole lot more interesting because Napoleon hung it in his bedroom for four years than it uh, would be without right. that ownership history. So I think uh, cars yeah. are the same. In a lot of ways, cars are absolutely the same. This show is called Cars That Matter. Does Gooding know where every one of them is? <laughs> uh, 
In an ideal world, yes. We know where most of them are, but occasionally, sure, we get surprised. That's part of the fun. I mean, life without a barn find wouldn't be much of a life at all. Yeah, exactly. You've um, dusted a few old girls off lately. That raspberry gullwing was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Well, that was a car. Yes, that's a sensational, original gullwing. It's a great fun is getting these phone calls and searching for these cars. I mean, we had a 540K and we found it in Germany through some other friends of ours in the art end of the auction business. Mm -hmm. They had said, oh, we're looking at these paintings, and we came across this 540K. Would you be interested? Absolutely. So flew over to Germany and consigned the car, and it came to Pebble Beach, and we sold it. Let's take a break and come back and talk about more cars and uh, maybe even take a look at the future of cars. We'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. So we're back with our host, Robert Ross and David Gooding. And David, I'd like to go back a little ways mm -hmm. to where your passion came from. At mm -hmm. what point could you look at a car and say, you know, that's <laughs> something I'd like to put on a stage with the right lights and the right prep and actually auction off to a crowd of sophisticated buyers. Well, How did that happen? Well, so I grew up in the classic car industry. My father was a museum curator, so he, he was the uh, curator of the Hera Collection, worked at the Nethercut Automotive Museum, the Crawford Museum in, in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was very into the brass era cars, so I would say performance cars from anything from 1900 to 1915, but pretty much anything pre-World War II. But he always liked powerful cars. So uh, I grew up around those exposed to things like Thomas Flyers and Mercer Raceabouts and, and, and Simplex, chain drive Simplexes and things like that, which are, for those people that aren't familiar with them, they're at first blush, they'll look at them and go, those are cute sort of cars, but they don't they're realize monsters. they're monsters and they're, they're exciting. They're really exciting to ride in or drive. I mean, a chain drive wooden wheel car that'll do 90 miles an hour. <laughs> That's a thrill ride. That's, that is that is uh, with no windshield yeah. and no doors, and you're holding on for dear life. Good That's, pair of goggles. Yeah, good pair of goggles if you're lucky. <laughs> That's. I don't think my father believed in goggles, <laughs> but but uh, uh, literally while he was working as a curator in the museum, working late nights, it was night at the museum. So I was left in the museum after it was closed at these different museums to wander around the car collections, and it's every kid's dream. Yeah, well, not every. You know, I mean some. Kids were more interested in playing video games or sports or whatnot. But I was I was uh, at these museums. After a few weeks of walking around the collections, you kind of get to know. You lift the hoods, you sit in the cars, you you know you look under them. There's only so much you can see. Then I would spend a lot more time in the libraries because the libraries are you could spend just endless hours in. And that's where I would actually spend more time is, is getting to know a lot about the cars and the, through the library. So this is a real passion. I definitely am, have the disease. And uh, my family will say, you know, look, you do this every day and then you come home at night and you're still reading about cars. I go, oh, yeah, but that's different. These are my work cars. And then this is, this is the fun stuff I that's want to read. That's fantastic. You know? <laughs> well, you got some fun stuff. I, I know you've got a few dinosaurs in your stable. Yeah, we have a 14 Silver Ghost. Uh, 
Uh, we have a 27 Bentley. And then we have some newer cars, some uh, sports cars from the 50s and 60s. And I, I mean, I, I love everything. I, <laughs> I could have a very big collection if, if permitted, if, uh, <laughs> if my budget permitted. But, well, uh, it sounds like you've got a very refined and specialized one, actually. And uh, going all the way back to Mercer, is that right? Yeah, that's the oldest car, 13 that's Mercer race. Fantastic. Uh, which is the car I learned to drive on. Wonderful car. Uh, I was 13 when I learned to drive this car. Well, that's not an easy car to drive. Surprisingly, it is actually not hard. It's actually <laughs> not that hard. It's It's got a standard four-speed gearbox that is very forgiving. The steering is very easy, and everything is absolutely out where you would expect it. The The only thing that's sort of unconventional is the brake is a handbrake. You have a foot brake, but the real brake you use is a is a handbrake, so you sort of toggle between shifting and braking but once you get used to that it's uh so you're never going to sell that car that that is part of your personality that is yeah that is ingrained yeah part of part of the family well i'd like to kind of really start asking the hard-hitting questions david and uh look into the david gooding crystal ball if we can oh oh, okay uh, yeah (laughs) but i think yours is probably a little more transparent than mine everybody's talking about the collector car market and we're seeing you know trends and tastes and things change in what ways do you think the collector car market market and the customer are changing. We don't see a slow up of the car collecting at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's it's growing dramatically and there is more of an affinity and an attraction for some older cars that are drastically different from the newer cars that are being produced. Basically, our clientele, everybody that we dealt with 20 years ago, if they're still around, they're most often Uh, active in collecting cars. In addition to them, there's a whole new cadre of collectors who are active and coming into the industry. How do I see it uh, changing? I mean, we're certainly selling more modern cars than we used to, much more modern cars than we used to, and different brands than we used to. We used to sell a lot of Packards. We're selling fewer Packards than we used to. We we used to not sell any Toyotas. We sell now. Now we sell. Who'd have thunk? Yeah, yeah. Man alive. Japanese uh, domestic market cars all of a sudden, and American market Japanese cars, all of a sudden there's a following. Yeah, exactly. And there's a huge following and 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 an active following. So we sell a heck of a lot more Porsches than we used to. And all of this is, is wonderful and great. But also that trend just means that some of the things that uh, uh, we're selling fewer of are not doing as well. I mean, we're, we're getting bigger prices for Packards than we used to. We're getting bigger prices for Duesenbergs than we ever did before. We may be selling fewer, but we're selling higher quality examples for more money. Would you say the market is sort of splitting off or bifurcating to become one of, uh, you know, where A-level 6, 7, and heaven help us, even eight-figure cars are, <laughs> are sort of on one side of the fence and then there's everything else? Definitely in the car market, but I, I think that's also true in many segments of the art market and when I speak to colleagues that are in those industries, they definitely, they're experiencing the same thing. So, yeah. And some people sort of lament that bifurcation. I think it's okay because if you want the very best of the best of the best, you're going to have to reach extra far. But it also means for the 
people that aren't able to reach, you know, maybe they can be happy with uh, mm-hmm. a car that doesn't have its original body or doesn't have its original engine. It, it can be worth a lot less, but it also becomes available and open to somebody without as big a budget, which is which is nice. You know, you look at the catalogs today from not only your own auction house, but some of the others, and you see that it uh, really the price of admission in the uh, collector car hobby starts at about $200,000, $250,000. That's a lot of discretionary income. The, yeah. So it's nice to know that there are at least some places to sort of play in the sandbox that uh, may not be quite that dear. That's right. There's a lot of opportunity in, in every price point, and you just have to be open-minded about it and flexible and figure out what's important to you. If you've ever been a bidder at an auction, then you know how quickly you can get carried away in the heat of the moment. Not only do you want that car, but this might be the only chance you'll ever get to own it. And believe it or not, going over budget isn't always a bad thing. When, when does it pay to overpay? <laughs> Is there a time that that's okay? Definitely. There's, you know, look, the, people are going to think this is a self-serving thing that you say, you know, you can never pay too much. And here I am as an auctioneer saying that. But from an investment point of view, and I don't usually advise people, I don't like to advise people from an investment point of view. But a few years ago, I think it was after one of our Pebble Beach sales, I, I, I had some time and I was just organizing my old catalogs from the last, all of our Gooding Company catalogs. And then, you know, I worked at Christie's for 11 years and I was going through it. I was organizing them all on the shelf. And so naturally I pull them out as they got out of order and everything. And I'm putting them back in order and I'm flipping through the the catalogs and looking, okay, that those 300 SLs sold for that and that sold for that and that sold for that. Oh, look, that, you know, gosh, that alpha, that was a world record price at that 2.38C alpha was you know, blew everybody's mind. It sold for how much? One and a how half much? million dollars. Oh my gosh! Blew in nineteen ninety five. I'll take ten. Yeah, exactly. Blew, blew everybody's mind. And then here again, this Ferrari that was a California Spider that sold for a world record price of eight hundred thousand dollars. No kidding. Yeah, we're going to take one more break, but don't leave us because when we come back, I'm going to ask David how you should develop your philosophy, your psychology, and your strategy when you're going to an auction and bidding <laughs> on a car. <laughs> We'll be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from... She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life, and so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com/slash a moment of your time. So we're back. And David, uh, when I walk into one of your auctions, I have to admit, um, I'm somewhat out of my league. I'm a little intimidated by what goes on. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about what should be my strategy when I walk into an auction. If I see a couple of cars that I know I want to bid on. First off, we you know, I can understand why it would be intimidating to people, but we don't want it to be. And we always encourage people to ask a lot of questions uh, at the time of the viewing. If you're if you're showing up ahead of time of the auction, 
come see a specialist. Which you always should, right? You absolutely always should. Uh, if you can't get there, send a trusted friend or advisor to, to come look at the cars. But come ask us whatever questions you have and try the car on for size. You know, it may look beautiful and fantastic, but then you go to sit in it and the steering wheel's in your gut and you can't slide in you, or, you, you know, you can't reach the pedals. Or, 55 I mean, T-Bird, anybody? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, I mean, you can't figure out how to, how to shift it. <laughs> right, right. Or the door, you know, or the windshield's in your eye, eye line. And there might be things that really don't work for you. Hopefully, you're going to use the car. You're going to drive it. Some people don't, but you know, if if it's if it's about driving it, you know, sit in it, get a feel for it, hear it run. Even if you're very seriously interested in it, we can organize a test drive in advance. But also ask a lot of questions. Ask to see the files, and we have a whole archive section where we have every every car's history file put together from the beginning to uh, contemporary time. So I encourage people to go through the archives, look at the file, look at the restoration receipts, look at the, you know, all the old photos and everything. And, and that's uh, super important. And then ask us about the car and, and what we can impart to you. Okay. So I've, yeah. I've, I've come there and I've, I've, I've found a car and, yep. and this is just yep. something that belongs in my collection. And, right. Okay. So I, I, I certainly don't want to let anybody know that I'm interested in the car. Right. right. And I just, and I, well, as it, as it proceeds, do, do I bid early? Do I? Well, no. Sometimes people that act very territorial can can kind of intimidate other people out of it. So mm-hmm. there's no one thing, but yeah, I mean, it, generally you're going to want to hold your cards close to your vest. But I've seen other people. So you people go to the guy sitting it, next to you and say, "You can leave now because I'm buying this car." Well, I've right? seen I've seen uh, big heavy hitters come in and go. You know, these are these are guys that are known to be wealthy, they'll come in and they'll say, I'm buying that car. And other people go, well, I've just, I never bid because so-and-so said they were buying the car. And then turns out so-and-so doesn't really, you know, go that strong on the car. So you, you can over-intimidate people. But generally, if you're going to, if you're going to play your cards close to your vest, watch the room, watch the room carefully, see who's, who's bidding. You may know them, you may not know them, but I would go into the bidding process with a number in mind, and then the way I think is, I usually have. No, a, no you're a plus. remembering you're the auctioneer. No, so. I know, I know. But I've been I've been in the audience, and I'm I'm ve- I'm a passionate collector, and I get I get caught up. Uh, red mist, ask, man. You, you red know, mist. Yeah, you get you get the red mist definitely. So you have your budget. I'm not going to pay more than a hundred thousand dollars. But then you you know in the moment you can then. million. Should I bid again? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, you're, you're a little less, uh, disciplined than myself, but yeah, no, I, you know, you can get, uh, you, you come up with that budget, but then be able to be a little flexible because you can, you can also read the people in the room and sometimes you tend to go plus one or two and oftentimes you can read the, the other bidders and you can see that they're, they're done or they're not. Of course, then there are always the wild cards, that German on the phone and uh, yeah. the guy from England on the phone. Right. And, uh, they boy, really are can... on the phone, right, David? <laughs> <You> can... <laughs> yes, they really are they... on the phone. Sometimes, what some people don't realize is sometimes there are people in the room on that the are phone. on the phone. So there are bidders in the audience talking to our phone bidder 
on, on the telephone bank. No, so I did not realize that. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. So uh, they like to be uh, somewhat trust, anonymous. They want, to be, they want to trust but verify and see what's going yeah. on in the room and read the room. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, do, you want, do you want to be in, Robert, do you want to be in one of the VIP seats in the front or like <laughs> sit in the back of the room and watch the crowd? You want yeah. to be the guy with the janitorial cart, but you're actually the guy bidding. Bidding on the, in yeah. the room, yeah. We have all kinds of different bidders and whatnot. But I, you know, I would, I would go with that car, follow it, obviously, and then watch the other bidders. And you can generally detect weakness and see whether or not they're going to fall back or not. And then, you know, you have to do some soul searching. And I would ask yourself, how special and rare is that car? Does it, is it exactly what you want? Is it everything that you'd hoped for? If so, really stretch extra. If it's not, then go your, go, you know, go with what you budgeted and then drop out. But to the point of what you were saying before about, about, you know, where to start and stop. One thing that I, that I don't think people um, take into account enough or ask themselves is, okay, if I'm going to pass on this car, how long, when is the next one Mm going to come up? Like, okay, they sure they're plentiful, but when is the next one in that color going to come up? That's going to be available in that condition. It may be very soon. It may be five years. Okay, so you're 60 years old and you're going, okay, well, I've got, you know, there's five summers that are five years gone that I'm going to have to wait. I'm a great believer in, look, life is short. If it's there and you can do it, go for it. There's nothing sadder than an old car collector with an empty garage space saying, (laughs) coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And a lot of them have money and a lot of them have regrets. And, uh, you know, I sit there and say, you know, you you just should have, you should have. What what is that that memory? You could have taken that car to, you know, on the millimilia with your son. I mean, what a, what a great memory that would be, you know? David is right. These cars are part of history, and that's why they matter. The opportunity to buy a particular car might come along once in a lifetime, so you don't want to let that slip by. But looking to the past is only part of the equation. Looking to the current state of car manufacturing, Bill had a great question for David. If your job today mm-hmm. was to go out and buy three brand new cars. Is there anything out there that you think is new and will be a collector car in the future, or are we just done? (laughs) No, certainly we're not done. Definitely we're not done. Look, Ferrari always makes exciting products, and not that everything they make is wonderful, but I would buy certainly a, a Ferrari, a Porsche. What would be the third car? Would a Bugatti get in there anywhere? Or, or? I, I love classic Bugattis. The newer Bugattis, I'm not as much of... I, I, I don't feel they're as pure. It's a nice stereo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great stereo. But I like the older Bugattis because I think of the new Bugattis as being VW Bugattis as, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, yeah. purebred Bugattis. More of statements of the possible than necessarily projections of a continuous history in the same way that Porsche or Ferrari have really been, uh, or for that matter, even Lamborghini have been the continuous thread of authenticity and ownership. Right, right. It's a restart of a brand. It's just not, it's not the original derivation. So how about, they're, they're a, how about a new Aston? They're gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, that could be. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the styling on the new Astons is sensational. 
and they have a unique styling that is distinctly there. So you don't see yourself thirty years from now uh, standing atop a stage and <laughs> and rolling a Tesla onto the stage for auction. I have great respect for what Tesla's done to the car industry. I think they're great cars. And and is it really a car? Or well, is it kind yeah, of no, an exactly. iPad on wheels. Yeah, no, it, I think it is that, and I, I I think that's interesting from a collectible point of view. Not I, so much. Not so much to me. Right. There's going to be some people that totally disagree. But it's, a, it's a cool way of getting from here to there, but it's oh, a and different... Oh, it's redefined things, and I've driven them. They're amazing. They're incredible to drive. What did you but drive I, here today, I, David? I drove a Lexus. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> With great air conditioning, yeah. wonderful traffic, wonderful Bluetooth, great room, and, and You talk about else. the smartest guy in the room. He's absolutely... Uh, yeah, that's great. But, but they're, they're fantastic cars, actually. They're really good. Yeah. And it's a normally aspirated V8 Lexus, so... Yeah. Yeah. One of the turbos and whatnot, but but back to the uh, Teslas. Sound in a car is an important for me as a as a car nut. But I as an appliance, they don't have to have sound. But as a as an enthusiast, they've got to have sound. And so the Teslas, to me, as an enthusiast, if I'm going to drive a car enthusiastically, I don't like. The, sure. Well, it's got to have some they noise. They could have piped it in through the stereo. Right? Yeah, not the same. <laughs> not the, not same. the same. What's the not best the sounding car? Uh, what engine do you like more than any other? Uh, well, or does I mean, it depend on the day? It depends on the day. I mean, there, there's nothing like a, a V12 Ferrari is phenomenal. They're incredible. Well, once you get it up above seven, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really you sound like they're right. really screaming. I like the screaming ones. Yeah. Uh, one of the best sounding cars of all times is a 300 SLR Mercedes, but we don't get to hear those a lot. There are many cars that sound great. You know, I, I love the, the sound that that a great 911 makes, but uh, noise is a real big part of it for me. I mean, it, a car that sounds good, you don't even have to be driving it that fast, but if it's making the right noises, it's part of the fun of driving a car. Uh, so, or riding in a car, you know, certainly. Well, so. Robert, David, <laughs> thank you both for coming into Malibu today on Robert Ross's Cars That Matter. I can't think of anything more fun than to pick your brain, the finest auctioneer on the planet. Can't wait to see your next show. Good luck with acquiring the cars that truly matter. Thank Thank you for coming in, and can't wait to see you again. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, David Gooding from Gooding & Company, for joining us on Cars That Matter. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us, and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross and Bill Curtis. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guest today was David Gooding. Tune into Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.